In this episode of Startups for Us, Rob and I are going to be having a casual conversation about what's going on. This is Startups for Us, episode 438. Welcome to Startups for Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob? You know, I just felt like we haven't done kind of a casual episode in a while where you and I talk about things that are going on. We, we often get stuck in this in this odd place where we, we might have a lot going on, but it's not necessarily stuff you can talk about or feel comfortable broadcasting to tens of thousands of people. So I, I feel like we're at a good place. You know, we're obviously pre-recording this episode because it's going to go live after microconf i think the week after and we'll be you know the, we're recording it the week before just cuz so much is going on that that whole week since we do growth and starter now i mean the week is just torched for me like when do you fly out and when do you fly back i fly out uh, on friday so i i get in at like eight o'clock or so on friday night and then i don't leave until the following friday uh, i think my flight's at like 12 or 1 or something like that yeah. So it's a full on week for you. Mine is, I, I go Saturday to Friday. So it's only six days, but still A, six days, seven days in Vegas, too long. B, pretty much the whole time, I don't know about you, but all I'm thinking about is what am I forgetting? <laughs> what, what am I missing this year? Oh yeah. We need that opening slideshow, you know, for the first 10 minutes of each conference, I need to update that. I need to, you know, there's all these little things uh, and then stuff just really ramps up. Sunday. So uh, is that how you like, do you, honest question, do you sleep very well at, uh, at microconfs typically? I haven't slept well in like four or five years. Yeah, it's so, like, you're it's not really wrong. a fair question. <laughs> yeah. You're the wrong person to ask. Yeah. I just don't, cause I tend to sleep well, I don't. I don't have many, you know, sleep problems in general, aside from grinding my teeth, so which is, you know, irritating as heck for Sherry. But, but yeah, microconf, I always struggle, and I think it's just how much I have in my going on in my mind. You know, that that I wake up at five and I'm like, got to make sure to do that one thing or to tell that to that one person who needs to be at that one place at that. T-. You know, there's just a lot of details, and even with, I mean, Xander has changed the game for us absolutely. Right. Sure. Um, but yeah. even then, I'm still thinking about stuff. And frequently, what happens is I think of it like, "Oh yeah, we need to do that one thing." Then I wake up in the morning and I text you and Xander, and Xander's like, "Yeah, I already took care of that a week ago." That's actually the most often thing, but it still wakes me up in the middle of the night, you know. Yeah, I think when I am in Vegas for microconf, the I I tend to actually sleep better, I think, than when I'm there than when I'm at home. But that's also, I think, partially a result of me remembering to bring like a sleep mask because otherwise the hotel the the blinds of the hotel rooms are absolutely horrendous. Like you flip them shut, but any hotel I've ever been in, they're never very good. So you have to have something else, and it just it feels like it gets so light so early, and it's just you know screws with me because I'm tend to be up late. And then the light comes in and wakes me up in the morning. And but yeah, that's that's the biggest problem I think I have. But you, I I agree with you. Like having all those little things that are hanging out that you just kind of they come up and you ha- remember that you oh like we have to do this or I have to go back and tweak that from last year's slides or whatever. That obviously comes up just constantly. But I ca- I carry around a a pen and a notebook like at all times just so that I can make sure to write things down as they're happening or keep track of like what has to go on with different sponsors or different times of the of each conference. I mean, there's just lots of little things to keep track of and trying to keep it in my brain. is just not going to happen. Yeah. And that's a good point too, because in my day-to-day workflow, I use email a ton. I use Trello. I use, I just have a system that all goes out the window when I'm at microconf because I'm not checking email 
very much at all. And I'm, I'm not looking at my Trello board. So I can't just do my typical, you know, I have email to Trello basically where all, if, if I'm, if you and I are talking in day to day, or I'm at a, whatever, a dinner party and someone mentions a book I should read or uh, something I should check out, a website, a person I should contact, whatever. I pop open Gmail, I email my, my own Trello board and it goes to the top of it. And then next time I sit down at my computer, I put it into the right queue. You know, it's a, a Amazon wish list or an audible wish list, or I fire off an email or whatever. I don't do that at microconf because I'm just not checking my Trello board at all. So that pen and paper approach you're talking about is what I, it's either that or simple note because I have simple note on my phone and I just open up a, a like a microconf only to do that I have to keep referring back to because it, I just find that my systems don't work when, when we're just running 110% for five days straight. Yeah, I, I agree. Like that's that's why I kind of switch over to the pen and paper. And one of the things that tends to drop down on my list is the email and text notification. Well, text notifications are different than like Slack notifications. Like Slack, completely, I t- totally don't pay attention to it. And like you're right though, is like being in a different environment like that where you're not at your desktop, you don't have all the tools available to you because you've just got so many other things going on, and you're not really able to get into any sort of deep work because you don't have your desktop or laptop or whatever. So it's just, it's a very different operating environment. Do you still use a desktop, Mike? I do. Actually. Are you going to bring that I with like... you to MicroConf? No, I'm not. <laughs> Why do you... <laughs> I think the 30-inch monitor would probably be hard to get through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For the love of God, man, why do you use a desktop at home and not a laptop? I've yet to find an actual laptop that I like and like enough to take with me. That's part of it, I think. But like I built my desktop from hand because like I've always kind of built my own computers, so even back like when I was in college. And I just, I don't know, I, I like the hardware that went with it. But at the same time, like because I built this five or six years ago, actually, no, it was more than that because uh, I just recently reformatted everything, but I didn't replace any of the hardware. So I'm trying to remember, I think it was... I think I found software that was installed in like 2010 or 2011. So it's like the hard, most of the hardware is that old, but it's still like, an, I think it's a hex core machine. It's like a, it was a top of the line I core i7 at the time. I've got 64 gigs of RAM in it and SSD drives. Like the thing is still a beastly machine, all things considered. Yeah. Given that it's 10 years old or nine years old, I guess that's, that's a trip. I, so I guess my question is it's going to, it's going to die eventually, right? It'll either fail or it'll just be too slow to run, run stuff. When that happens, are you going to buy or build another desktop or are you just going to pony up for top of the line? You know, cause you run windows, right? So it's top of the line Dell or HP or whoever's making the, you know, Lenovo these days. Yeah. Well, for a while I'd been using a MacBook pro and just ran VMware on top of it. Dual booting right? Yeah. or VMware. Well, right. So are you gonna are you gonna do that just buy a high end MacBook? I don't think so. Like I have I have not heard anybody have great things to say about like the newer Macs. Uh, like everybody I see talking about them kind of hates them. They're like, oh, I wish I could go back to the 2013 model. Which, and funny enough, I actually have a 2013 MacBook Pro. Yeah. So I use that when I travel, but you know, I've I go back and forth on this. Like the I think the biggest thing for me is in order to be productive, I feel like I have to have more screen real estate available to me. And, you know, like I run three monitors at all times. One of them is a 30 inch. I got a pair of 20 inch monitors and like that really works well for me. But going to a laptop kind of sucks. And I've looked at like the surface books. You can do that because I run three. Well, I run two monitors two 24 inch or whatever off of my laptop. So my laptop is one monitor and it's retina. So it's amazing. And then I have the two 24s. So I essentially have three. How is that different than what you're doing? 
It's not, except that on like the one laptop that I was looking at was the Microsoft Surface Book, and it doesn't have the ability to do three monitors at like 60 hertz because of like the bandwidth limitations or something like that for 4K monitors. And I'm just like, it's like they're so close. They really, really are. So maybe that's the limitation. See, I, I wonder if there isn't a laptop out there. You don't need to drive three monitors, right? You just need to drive two because the laptop itself, if it's high res, you can use that uh, in the center, right? So I have an elevated elevated thing, right? So my neck is, uh, you know, my laptop's up at, at head level, at eye level. And then I have a, a remote, you know, Bluetooth keyboard and mouse that I set on my lap basically on a panel. And that's the center monitor. And then I have two on the other side. So I, I just need to drive two. Can you find a... A, would that situation work for you? And B, can you find a, a Windows laptop that can drive two 4K monitors? So I haven't tried that, doing that yet. Would it work for me or could I make it work for me? I probably could. But your comment about like, oh, well, you know, eventually the, my machine is not going to be able to do it. Like for the time, like my machines lasted long enough. Like since that time, like processors haven't gone to like six or seven gigahertz. So it's, I don't think it's an issue of that so much as like just being able to have the laptop itself and like i don't have a justifiable reason to just go drop like three or four thousand dollars on a new laptop no i agree and i don't think you should do that now i was just wondering when your desktop fails because it will something's going to happen right or it's going to it's going to get too slow in the next five years it's not it's not going to last 15 years you know and i was just wondering what you were going to do at that point but maybe uh maybe you'll you'll evaluate when you get there i i guess the thing of just working on a laptop all the time dude is then when you're traveling, you're not in this weird environment where you don't have your stuff and it's not the way it is. You know, I mean, I, I have a 13-inch MacBook Pro and it is the new one with the touch bar. I don't love the touch bar, but I've gotten used to it. But when I'm at home, I have extra screen real estate. It's amazing. When I'm on the road, I don't, but I have the, I have the you know, you can flip back and forth between the windows and I have the exact same shortcuts, icons everywhere, the same files. You know, it's everything. It's the same hard drive. And so to me, traveling isn't this big issue because I'm not, I hate switching computers, I guess is what, is what I'm saying. And I feel like that's why most people have moved to laptops is so they can be mobile and go to a coffee shop or do something. And it's not this step down aside from screen real estate. It's not a step down in productivity. So that's all I was uh, wondering, you know, for you. Yeah, no, like, and that's something I've looked at. Like my preference, I think would be able to have a laptop that can do everything that I want and needed to do. And then just have like a docking station and just plug it in. And like, everything's the same. I can go on the road or go to a coffee shop or something like that, but I don't work well, or at least I haven't historically worked very well in coffee shops or remote locations. And it's partly because like my chair, like I have back problems. So for me to sit at a coffee shop or in some weird chair that doesn't do a good job of distributing my weight, I have a kind of a hard time just sitting there and trying to be productive because I'm just sitting there in pain more than anything else. So maybe that's part of why I, it doesn't matter nearly as much to me as it probably would to somebody else. But I do want to at some point be able to switch and just say, like, I just grab the thing and go. And that's my entire environment and nothing's changed. I don't have to worry about any of the stuff that you talked about where syncing things back and forth or, I mean, most of the time for the current setup I have, like I have a MacBook Pro, but then I have a Windows VM that's, that's running on it. And I reinstall all the software there. It's a, it's a very similar environment. It's not exactly the same, but anything that needs to be there, I just keep it in Dropbox or Google Docs or something like that. And it's not that big a deal. And Chrome keeps all of my book marks in the same places. So it's, it's not nearly as painful as it probably was 10 or 15 years ago. 
That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, with Dropbox and then and then being able to sign into Chrome and have your browser because you, you're in the browser most you know a lot of the time anyway, right? Unless you're writing code, so it is nice, cool. So we we were talking about microconf and we we veered into that. I'm pretty stoked, man. You're running a uh, a little mini campaign, fifth edition D and D on Saturday. I am. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So I've got a bunch of stuff that's already kind of laid out. I have I have a couple of things that I gotta send you guys, so I have to do that in the next day or so but yeah it should be good i almost wish i could like talk a little bit more about it because i think it's going to be interesting i've actually run it twice so far okay so it's, it's not like everything is completely new so there's certain places where i know that there's a few issues to kind of iron out but i think i've got them all straightened out and uh i actually took this step of having i took all of your characters and i gave them to other people and said i want you to play these characters and i wanted to see how things kind of shook out I, I'm hoping it's well prepared. <laughs> That's cool. Well, yeah, if you've done it multiple times, it's like, to me, it's like a conference talk. You know, the second, third, fourth time I do a talk, it just gets better and better until the point where I get bored of it and it starts getting worse. So I think you're still on the up, upswing with this campaign. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's just a simple one shot and I expect it to take maybe three or like both times they've run it before. It's taken four hours. So I'm like, yeah, I got to kind of tighten that in somehow. A little bit. Yeah. And I, I, I have an idea of how to do that. I'm not sure you guys will like it, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kill it. To kill it. Do a TPK. No. Well, I could do that. You know, for very first room, you walk in, hey, everybody dies. All right, let's go get a beer. <laughs> yeah. No, I was thinking something along the lines of like a timer or something like that. Be like, hey, this is uh, this is kind of timed here. You've got to go a little bit quicker than you normally would. So I don't know. Right. There's there's a nuclear bomb waiting to go off and it goes off if you don't get this done. Is this something, uh, is this a campaign you came up with or is it a, like a module? So it's a module that I actually ported over from, somebody ported it from fourth edition to fifth and then I ported it from that platform into kind of like, because uh, it was made for Fantasy Grounds, which is, allows you to play D&D online, and you get tokens and stuff to drag around and stuff. But the module itself, because it was ported from 4th edition to 5th edition, it's got errors in it. And that's why I wanted to play it a couple of times in advance, because the very first time I ran it, I was like, this is a problem, that's a problem, this is wrong, like flat out. Like they're referring to things that just simply don't exist. So it's like, and the authors never went back and fixed any of it. So it's like, well, what's my interpretation of what they, what it should be or how it's supposed to be? Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And for folks who, who don't know, it's 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons that we're talking about, which is the current edition of that. And uh, you and I have never gamed together before. So this is this will be kind of cool. And uh, frankly, I got out of D&D until four or five years ago when my oldest son got old enough to, to start playing. Then I had the impetus to, to get into it again. Did you also take a bunch of time off from it and recently get back into it? Yeah, like when I when I went from when I graduated from high school and went to college, I think I played once after once or twice. Like I played once in college that I remember, and I might have played over the summer, like the year after I went to college or something like that with some friends back home. But like you, I took a bunch of time off, and I started in when when they first published fifth edition. I bought the books as they came out. So when the when those were published, I think it was back in 2014. So it was about five years ago. That's when I got back into it and started rereading the stuff. So I basically skipped from the second edition all the way to the fifth, and know very very little about the third and fourth editions other than what I've read about what the differences are between those and the fifth edition. Just because some people I play with have played the like th version three and i didn't know much about it so i was like trying to educate them about what the differences were but most of the people i play with now they either played second edition or they're kind of new right now i did the same thing i played basic 
back in the early eighties and then played for, <laughs> I really did. And then when first edition, you know, AD and D came out, we played that. I know, I don't think I ever played second edition, never played third or fourth. So really when I got back into it, let's say four or five years ago, I Googled coming back into D and D and going to teach my kid, you know, should we play first edition? Cause that's what I'm most familiar with or is fifth edition good. And there were these really, there were some really cool threads talking about the pros and cons of it. And in the end, people were like, look, fifth edition is a better, like not better. That was not the word they used, but it, it's a faster rule set. So the game moves quicker. It's, it's easier to understand for someone who's never played it. And there's tons of new stuff being put out for it. So you can do either one, but consider, you know, checking out fifth edition. And so, you know, it's nice that the, that the rules are available for free, right? There's a PDF that Wizards of the Coast lets you download. So I downloaded it and I was like, kind of blown away by the simplicity and how they had gotten rid of, of descending armor class and, and all these tables to hit and savings, you know, saving throws and stuff. And it's just come down to, you know, difficulty checks with advantage and disadvantage. It's just real elegant to me, elegant simplifications of things. Now I know folks who are used to the old stuff, you know, adopting something new, it's like changing programming languages from, from C to Ruby or something, or, you know, C to .NET, where it's like, oh my gosh, this is such a different paradigm. And even if it, if it might be more elegant or whatever, it doesn't feel that way because it's different. But for me, trying to re-enter it and not wanting to, you know, when I was when I was ten or twelve or fourteen, I just had hours and hours to pour into it and invent our own stuff and read every book. But I just, I just don't have that time now. It's like, look, I have two hours a week, maybe three hours to hammer something out. What's fast and what's fun to play, you know? Yeah, and now you can go online and there's like random dungeon generators and random character generators and all the stuff that's just like they're fantastic tools that streamline things. I mean, I remember used to spend like an hour or two creating a character and now you can just go on and use one of these tools and you can have a character done in like 10 or 15 minutes tops. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I love the fifth edition rule set over all the other ones that, you know, over the basic edition and then AD&D first edition and second edition just because – I think the biggest thing that I think it has going for it is that the characters get your character will get more powerful as they level up as opposed to depending so much on like items and things like that in order to make you more powerful. That's the thing I I really I think I disliked the most about some of those the previous editions because like you could just make somebody completely overpowered at like a super low level just by giving them a bunch of magic items whereas with this one I mean you're competitive every step of the way with with no magic items which is kind of awesome right yeah that makes sense all right let's uh i know we could talk about D. this could be casual D conversations with robin mike or tabletop gaming but i don't want to you know folks who, who don't play D might have already tuned out so those two those two listeners are are gone but i have a question for you have you ever been to a conference where the opening 10 minutes where kind of the host gets on stage and talks about things, right? Sets the stage, so to speak, for what's going to happen during the conference. What's the best one of those you've ever seen? Or have you seen any that have blown you away, I think? And obviously the reason I'm asking is we have adapted ours over the years. And, you know, especially last year changed the whole the slide deck changed and format changed and stuff. And I'm just trying to think about the best way to keep improving that. I don't know about best. I would say the most interesting one I ever saw, and I wasn't there personally for this, so I'm. this is a little bit of secondhand information. I was there the year after, and I think that as a result of that 
previous year, uh, things had changed at the, in terms of policies of the company. But it was at a Altiris conference back in, I want to say, 2007 to 2009 timeframe, something like that. Maybe it was even slightly before that. But the founder of the company came out and went up onto the stage, or actually came, he came in through the back and went through the aisles and up on the stage riding a motorcycle. Okay. So... So on, so let's talk to Xander and on Monday, I want you to do that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I do have my motorcycle <laughs> license. I could do that theoretically, but. Fantastic. I, I think we may need to update the insurance and the uh, waivers and various other things. And all the things. <laughs> yeah. And rent a motorcycle and get the trap to let us drive it through the hall. Yep. Yeah. All right. So that's not so. helpful. <laughs> no, thanks sorry. For, thanks for the completely unhelpful. Uh, that's no, my job I mean, here, I think. It's be completely unhelpful. I, I, exactly. <laughs> Doing it uh, 438 episodes since 2010, being unhelpful. Yeah, I don't know what the uh, the most interesting thing is. I mean, I've seen, uh, I've been to conferences where the founder of whatever the business is will come out and they'll give uh, like a really good opening talk or presentation and it talks about kind of the future, but it's not like a five or 10 minute intro. It's usually like the, the keynote speech or something like that. It's a keynote, right? It's an actual talk. It's not just because obviously at MicroConf, for folks who haven't been, you and I get up and we have between 10 and 15 minutes right at the start of the conference where we welcome everybody. We talk about what MicroConf is. We go through and, you know, kind of a breakdown of attendees and stages they're at and that kind of stuff. And it sets the stage for where we're headed because it would be weird if everyone shows up at 10 a.m. on Monday and you and I get up and we're just like, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Cohen, you know, or Chris Savage or whoever our speaker is, and they get up on stage because it's almost like it, it's not a program then. It's just a disjointed speaker after speaker after speaker. There's no context for all of it. And that's I why we've always done the welcome of like, welcome, you know, and I don't know. They, so I'm just trying to think of, of something that's not a keynote per se. I guess, I mean, we could all, we could do whatever we want. We can't do it this year because the schedule is already set, but you know, next year, you and I could do well, are you looking? Are you looking for something like different and to, like to change it up in terms of saying, well, how can we do this differently? Or are you just looking for ideas of what other things or are you just looking for validation of like, is this the best thing for us to do or not? So I think we should do it. I, I don't think that's part of the conversation, right, of us not getting up there. Because I think it would be super weird if we weren't there to welcome the people. Someone has to be there. So I think we should do something. And I think what we did last year was better than what we had done in prior years. But I just am looking, is there anything else we can add to that to make it even better? And that's what I'm thinking about. So I think the best one I've seen is was at Saster. Jason Lemkin got up and talked for maybe 15 minutes. And it wasn't a keynote. It was kind of like the state of Saster. And he talked about the conference and he talked about their community and he talked about their fund. And it really was just an overview. You know, it's like when you think about writing a 10-page paper, like you start high level and then you dig in deep. And then at the end, you come back to high level to conclude. And that's how I think we structure MicroConf, right? We have that introduction that really is this high level context setting. And then at the end, we should wrap it up with context and stuff. And we even have to structure the talks that way, right? We don't tend to put a super tactical talk as the first talk on Monday because it's, the vibe is, is off if you do that. So that's it. I don't know that I have. I, I think I might try to think back to what Saster's opening was like and see if there's any elements of that that, that could apply to us. We're, we are similar to that opening in that we do set context, but I think there's, there's just ways to do it better. 
Well, I think what we do is, I mean, we set context for the attendees at the conference. I mean, an idea that comes to mind, and obviously there's zero time to do that for this year, but, and this is actually something that I had had an idea of within the past couple of years of like, hey, it'd be cool if somebody kind of headed this up and not that I really had the time to do it, but it's, it's something that either we could potentially put together because of the audience and community. But as you said, kind of like give the state of self-funded entrepreneurs or the state of SaaS applications or the state of like software in general for, you know, like extremely small software companies like ours and give like a 10 or 15 minute overview of, hey, this is this is some of the major changes that have kind of come out over the past year or so. This is how things are progressing. These are things to, that are going on in the industry that people should kind of either be on the lookout for or be careful of, or these are some opportunities that you guys might want to think about, as opposed to what we do right now, which is welcome them to the conference, which I, I do think we still need to do that. But I also think that it would be nice if there was this extra piece there that was kind of an opening that did set the stage for other stuff. And, and I think that what that would actually probably take is doing interviews with founders or calls or surveys and things along those lines to help gather information from the community to be able to compile that and show to them. So like I did a, a talk in MicroConf Europe in 2016 that was that I basically did that. I, I asked people for information and said, hey, could you submit this? And I'm basically writing a talk about it. And I included a bunch of that information, but it's not something I could potentially do like every single year. So I just didn't keep it up. But I think something along those lines could be helpful and useful for the audience. Do you know what the name of my talk is on Monday afternoon? You have not looked, have you? <laughs> you know, I don't even know the names of all the speakers. That's I know. <laughs> well, because we do keep a firewall between speakers and sponsors, right? And I actually literally, we were talking last week, I guess. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I know some of the sponsors because there's a lot of them returning, but I t tend to wait until a day or two before to look through all the sponsors because I don't want the speakers. This is our editorial firewall, right? So advertising versus editorial. It's like, we don't link those two up. I don't want that to influence decisions. Right. But the name of my talk is The State of Bootstrapping in 2019. So it's not it's not exactly what you are talking about, but I am trying to give that overview and talk about trends and what's happened over the past 10 years. It's it's a take. I mean, you saw my Europe talk from what 8 months ago or 6 months ago. It's an expansion of that. So yeah, that's that'd be cool. I mean, uh, obviously, like you don't want to do one hour talk at the very beginning like that. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how you would condense your talk into like the 10 or 15 minutes. And that's the other thing I think I would struggle with is how to gather enough data that is meaningful and useful to the audience and present it in a short enough time frame that it isn't distracting or it doesn't create a whole host of other questions. Right. Where you have all these questions, then it's like, all right, and now our first speaker and people are still like, no, wait, I want to hear more. Yeah, that was in the middle of it. I'm so confused. Right. Yeah. So what's up with Blue Tech? Oh, uh, let's see here. I've <laughs> oh, done. Oh, about... oh that. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> wait, Blue... What's Blue Tech? What's that? Can what, you what spell it... that? I need to Google it real quick while we're on the call. <laughs> what, what have you been? What, what's the news on that? I'm sure people want to hear. Have you been working on it? Are you too bogged down with MicroConf stuff? I've been so bogged down with like microconf stuff and all sorts of other things going on. I mean, I think we I think we talked about it a little bit in the last episode or the one before that, but like the, just the timing of microconf and lots of other things that are going on. 
has been so incredibly bad that I have not had time to look at it. Like last week I had to sit down for like a day or two and look at renewing my health insurance. Cause I think most people renew their health insurance at the beginning of the year. Mine's up for renewal on April 1st. And I, and I, I had to call them and I'm just like, look, this is really bad timing. And they're like, we need to have this paperwork in by the first and otherwise it's going to renew like at the current rates. And I'm like, dear God, it's like a worse timing. I don't renew my health insurance. What does that even mean? You have to reapply and fill out paperwork? I've never done that. So they change the plans every year. And I don't know whether this happens for everybody, but like they change the insurance plans that are available and the rates for all of them change as well. Jeez. So, and sometimes they will move things around, like they'll move, like a, they'll change the prescription coverage or they'll change what is covered under a particular plan or they'll change copays or you know, which hospitals they cover. And it's just like, dear God, this sucks. And because it's due the, like a, I have to renew by April 1st or basically I just don't have coverage and it will automatically renew. But because of the time frame, like I have to look at it now and figure out whether what I'm going to be doing now is the right thing or not. And I was like, well, what about like an HSA account or something like that? And they said, oh, well, in order for you to do an HSA account, we have to give you entirely new plans because these are not HSA certified. And I'm like, oh my God. And then there's like a health savings account, which is not. But that's an HSA. It's FSA, flexible spending account. I think that's it. Yeah. 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 So it's just like all these terms that are very close to one another that I'm not familiar with because I'm not in that industry. I'm just like, I'm so confused. Like, why do I have to learn this right now and have like 10 minutes to do it? So it's just, like I said, it's just bad timing and lots of major things all in a very compressed time frame, And it sucks. So you've been doing health insurance, taxes, prepping for microconf. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. yeah. And so blue ticks just kind of blue ticking along. Yep, basically. I mean, uh, you know, aside from the things that I talked about the last couple of weeks, you know, the webcast that I'm going to be doing. I mean, but that's scheduled in late April. So it's just I, I've been doing little things here and there, trying to move things along. And then I've also been doing research on kind of like the the backend framework that runs blue tick. And what was it there was a there was an open source application that, and maybe this is a good time to talk about that, or maybe we should talk about it in a future episode, but I talked to Andrew Culver briefly about it because he is the founder of Bullet Train, which is essentially a framework that you can use as like a starting point for your app, whatever it is, whatever it happens to be. He takes care of all of the fundamental things like sign-in, password reset, Stripe integration, and all these things. And basically you start plugging the logic of your application in. Well, when I was first building BlueTick and started out, like I couldn't really find anything like that, but I did find an open source project where they said, hey, you know, here's the MIT license for this or whatever, and you can use this stuff. And it looked like it was pretty decent. It's just it didn't do everything that I needed to do. And they didn't use same of the, some of the same libraries. So I based a lot of stuff in on it and then I imported some of the code. But then there was, you know, there's obviously like a divergence there and I, they did their own thing and I did mine. And I went back and looked at it and it's it's much farther along than it was at the time and more advanced in certain cases, which would actually make it easier for me to use that and plug in more functionality. But the database tables don't line up. So it's like I'd have to port things over and deal with that stuff. And I'm just like, eh, is it worth it? So I've done a little bit of exploration there. But by porting it over would give me like all the core functions or features of just like a SaaS application would be taken care of for me and I wouldn't have to worry about them. So it's like, I, I just don't know, have a good sense of how long it would take to do that or whether it's worth it. Like it may be something I just do it over time and not necessarily worry too much about it. 
Oh, yeah. I, I think the question I ask is like, to me, your number one goal right now is more paying customers, right? It's, it's ensure problem solution fit, ensure product market fit, and more paying customers. And this doesn't do that. I know that it makes longer term, it's a good call, right? If, if, this is a, if you run this app for 10 years, 20 years, then yeah, it's good to be on a framework, assuming that they maintain it and, and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think, I, I think that's pushing off the number one priority, which is get more people in your funnel, close more deals, get more revenue, because that's really the, the point you're at. So just my take. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And that's why I haven't like tried to bite the bullet and actually do it, because like there's certain issues that the app has in terms of like team accounts and things like that. And I'm just like, ah, I don't, I don't want to go down the path of some of those things right now until I have more customers and more revenue. Cause it's just not, I don't want to say it's not important. It's just, it, it's not the top priority. Yeah. So I don't know at some point I'll do it, but I, I have a hard time doing it now. <laughs> I would agree. There's always a lot of distractions like that, right? It's like, I think we talked about last time where customers give you more things or even you have more great ideas than you can ever implement. And so you, you have as part of being a founder and making the right choices, picking the ones that are going to have the most impact for you, you know, and it's like, well, what are you trying to impact now? And to me, it's your top line or bottom line or, you know, however you want to phrase that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. I guess, uh, you know, in the interest of time, we'll wrap up here in the next couple minutes. I mean, there's some new stuff with Tiny Seed, but it's like, it's in that weird phase where we have all these applicants and and I'm interviewing a lot of them. I'm having, f- I'm having fun doing it. It's super busy. And then like you, trying to get taxes done, prepping for microconf. Like I really, you know, my talk is not done. And, you know, I fly out uh, basically <gasps> in 48 hours. I know the dirty little secret of you do enough talks and you find that you write them closer and closer to your deadline. I remember Darmesh Shah at BOS years ago, it's probably a decade ago now, we were talking and we were both doing a talk that year, I believe. I might've been doing like a lightning talk and he was doing a full one. But anyways, he said, yep, I'll start my talk at 11 o'clock tonight. And he did it the next day, you know? And I was like, what? I've been prepping for weeks. And I was obviously much earlier in my <laughs> in my conference speaking than he was. But he said, yeah, he typically, typically stays up to like three in the morning and just writes his talk all at once the night before. And that that's kind of his best way to work. And that's not mine because I don't like staying up that late, but I do find that the pressure of having to get it done often forces me to to really focus and and ship good material. Whereas I can sp- I can burn dozens of hours over the course of weeks if I have all this time to write the talk. Now the practice of it I think is another thing that I think having more time to practice does improve the talk. So I'll have to figure out some good times to to do that. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I kind of struggle with too. Is getting the talk done early enough to be able to also do a lot of practice. And that's like I don't know about you, like I have little hacks and stuff that I put in a bunch of my slides. Where if I'm going through and have a couple of bullet points, if there's a bullet point that has a period at the end of it, then I know that hitting the button again goes to the next slide and things like that. It's like most people wouldn't catch those types of things, but they're just like little things that I use as visual indicators for myself to know like kind of what's coming next or to pay attention to certain thing or make a certain point. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the last thing for me is I've just with with Tiny Seed, you know, as with any startup in the early days, well here's the here's the difference actually is nowadays if I were to start a new company that's going to build a software product, I would go to Stripe Atlas and I would form, you know, an LLC or a C Corp through their one click thing and it creates the bank account and it does all this stuff. It's a solved problem now. And I know that you're then going to need some other paperwork as you hire employees and stuff. It's, you know, but there's gusto and there's benefits. And 
there are there are ways that have simplified it. It's not there yet with starting an accelerator and essentially a fund, an investment fund. The nature of starting those is not as refined, and so you go straight to a you know a law firm and you're forming multiple LLCs that re- reference one another, and there's just a lot of complexity there. And so, you know, luckily, Anar has been uh, my, you know, co-founder with with Tiny Seed has taken care of most of that. But there have just been a few points where I've been involved in conversations as we're trying to get term sheets. I roll here. You know, we're getting term sheets nailed down and stuff. And like, I had one simple question about changing one word to make things clearer, and it wound up being this ten email back and forth that got more and more and more complicated. And I don't know if I wasn't explaining myself well, but. It was one of those moments where I finally said, I give up. I, it's just going to have to be complicated on the dock because to change it from pre-money to post-money would require a huge paragraph and all these exceptions and this huge bulleted list in what is otherwise a 10-word sentence right now. You know, if we, and if we do pre-money, then it's 10-word sentence. And if you do post-money, I think based on what he was telling me, I couldn't actually understand it. It just squirrels out of control. And that's the kind of stuff that is so frustrating to me as someone who was trying to get things done because I was trying to send things to people three days ago. And then it winds up being this back and forth, back and forth. And we were going to jump on the phone. I know it wouldn't have helped. It would have been the same conversation that happened via email. So I think the perpetual frustration of being a founder is you always have these things that are just that are just outside of your control or maybe your expertise. And they get complicated and they become time sucks beyond what they should, I think. And I've, I'm learning when to just throw my hands up and say, look, I'm going to give up on this one. And we'll just, I'm not going to fight this anymore. I'm not going to waste any more time. I think as a younger entrepreneur, I wasted a lot of time fighting against things like this rather than eventually just saying, look, it doesn't really matter. Just do it the way it is. You raged against the machine when you were younger. <laughs> Indeed, I did. Over no, and over. I, I don't think that that's well, – so I think that that type of problem happens in general. Like when you start a business, there's going to be certain things that are out of your control, and it sucks because you want to move fast and you want to get them done. But at the same time, I think that one of the issues that you're running into is that when when it comes to legal terminology, like there's hundreds of years of history of like legal things that have happened and there is precedence that has been set. So when you say, you know, one word versus another word, it can drastically change how that is interpreted in the eyes of like the courts. So it sucks to have to deal with that stuff. I don't want to say it's exactly like programming because with writing code, like you have to be very explicit about what you want it to do and then what the exceptions are. But with legal terminology, like there's always, I don't want to say ambiguity, but there's ways, different ways to interpret the exact same words. And it's, it kind of sucks sometimes. Yeah, it is what it is. I know that people out there are probably nodding their head. You know, it's like taxes, legal stuff. There are others, I don't know, plumbing code in your SaaS app. It's things that, don't move your business forward, but you said plumbing code, and I thought the actual like plumbing. Like plumbing, that that too. <laughs> Until you got the word code, <laughs> it's stuff that doesn't move your business forward. So, right. So all that to say, we should probably wrap it up for the day, huh? Yeah, I think so. If you have a question for us, our, most of our episodes are not this casual, and we answer a lot of listener questions as well as dive into uh, detailed and interesting startup topics. So if you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690, or you can email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups, and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening.
We'll see you next time.